On February 25, 1983, SDCF hosted a panel moderated by Nola Haig featuring T. Edward Hamilton, Judith Haskell, Nell Nugent, and Michael Stewart in discussion about the collaboration between directors and producers. Hello, I'm SDC Director Kathleen Marshall, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. Um, I think it behooves me to say as little as possible and have our panelists speak as much as possible. And I'd like them to start um, by talking, since most of them are well known to you, and I'm sure you've looked at the uh, credit sheets in front of you, I'd like them just to start talking, first of all, about the qualities of a good producer, since they are among the best representatives of producers we could hope to uh, uh, have among us. Um, Michael, would you like to start? Sure. Hello. Nice to be here. Nice to be a producer. Uh, the qualities of a good producer, I think, uh, bottom line, uh, if we're fortunate enough to work with good producers, and I think there are very few of them around, is basically somebody that knows what a show is about. Somebody that has been there, somebody that knows all of it, you know, from what a stage manager, basically what a producer should know, as far as I'm concerned, is everybody's job and what everybody has to do uh, in constructing a piece. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have been in the theater for a long time. Uh, I began as a performer, so I know what everybody's job is. Uh, I'm equipped to do a lot of a lot of jobs within the theater, and uh, I hope that I, you know, will be lucky to continue to be able to hire people to do those jobs better than I can do myself. But as I say, uh, you know what everybody's specific contribution has to be to the piece, from your performer to your set designer to your costume designer to your general managers to your casting people, so that you really understand what they have to do to make the production come together. And there are a lot of people, it takes a lot of people to contribute to making uh, a successful show. And that's basically what it is. The producer has to know what everybody's job is so that that man or woman can guide those people through their jobs and make necessary suggestions and inspire them to do their jobs better than they did the last time. I, you know, other than getting the funds together. I mean, we know it's about money. Uh, but And that, that kind of goes without saying. Uh, the money is the area of the theater that I really had to learn. I had to learn about, in quotes, making deals. Uh, and because I am basically a creative person, uh, I address myself to making creative business deals and uh, instituting new ways of putting deals together. Some of them uh, seem totally outrageous to the Director's Guild uh, or the Dramatist Guild, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But there are, this is a different time than 20 years ago, and we have to start changing a lot of those old-fashioned ideas. So I'm trying to be as creative in the business end as I know that I am in the creative end. 
But as I say, I think the producer has to know what everybody's job is so that that person can guide those people to success. Now, could we hear from you how you would expand upon it, Michael? I think I'd reduce it to a good producer can produce a flop, but he sure won't produce a bomb, and there's a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, you may produce a play, in other words, that doesn't, I mean, it just doesn't work for whatever mm -hmm. reason, but an ignominious failure <laughs> that the critics write such scathing things about that you really want to kill yourself is unlikely a good producer will do, because first of all, he wouldn't pick the property in the first place, and he wouldn't have talked good people into getting involved in it. So I mean I think that's the succinct version of it. But I think most of all, you know, without being facetious, and that was semi facetious. Uh, a good producer makes an atmosphere that is conducive for creative people to do their best work and then gets the hell out of their way. T, what about uh, from the perspective of running in theater such as the Phoenix, what do you think makes for a good producer? Well I think from time to time we've uh, produced some bombs. <laughs> and uh, I can think of, without being too close to anything, Liz Estrada, I thought it was something that would always work. We managed to do it in such a way that it was <laughs> painful and shocking to the critics. And the critics, you know, are really very easily shocked when they, they find something that is uh, out of kilter, even with Aristophanes. And another one was with Hamilton. We did a second Hamilton when we were uh, at the Vice. We'd done one with great success with Donald Matthews. This was Ellis Rabbs, and things went uh, very wrong indeed. And certainly what Nell was saying, and certainly what Michael was saying, is true in terms of uh, knowing the job or knowing all of the jobs. and. Uh, bringing everything together in one sort of a central idea that you know about. But I think that the, the mark of the producer uh, is to be able to cope with the, the uh, problems that come up along the way, it's something that nobody quite realized was going to happen. And uh, you're faced with it late one night or early one morning or whenever. And that you have some answers to it and you have uh, what you hope looks to the world like something sort of a firm hand in dealing with it. So it's being in there, it's being from the beginning of, on, the, on the planning to the matter of being able to cope with it in a tactical manner as you get along with it. Judith, what, could you tell us um, what differences you might find uh, having worked so, in so many places around the country and in, in mediums? Well, I agree with everything that these two have, uh, these three have said. Um, there are some producers out in the regions who are very laissez-faire and just let you come in and do your job, give you a few notes at the first run-through, which you can take or not take, and so on, and they're very helpful and supportive. There are others who are Napoleonic and very controlling, and that means everything in their theaters is controlled by them. People live in fear and shake and quake, and you come in and he expects you to be also quaky and shaky, but if you stand up to him, you may have a lot of fights. Um, it may be a difficult thing because you want his notes and you take the ones that you think are right and you discard the ones that you don't like. 
for the show. And then he fights with you, let us say, about those things. And you have to stand your ground. And so there are, there are many different kinds of producers that I've dealt with. There are some that have a rather sloppy way of running a theater. Um, it just sort of gets done because the people care. Uh, I think the most important thing for a producer, from my point of view, is to have trust in the people you hire, like the director, the set designer, the choreographer, whatever. Also, to be willing to spend money if it's really necessary, um, not to get very uptight when you ask to have a pianist at callbacks of auditions instead of having the musical director play for everybody when they are spending millions of dollars on a new housing thing for actors or whatever they're doing out there. Um, it's a matter of priorities. They have to trust. They have to let you do your thing. And I do agree with Mr. Hamilton that a firm hand is required when it's important. Sometimes actors have to be replaced. That's a very difficult thing for a director who has cast that actor to replace him. It's wonderful to have the producer come in and say, this won't work, we must get someone else, no problem. We'll do it immediately, and so on. All these things are part of it. Good. Could we now maybe talk about the qualities of, of a good director? Michael, maybe you talk about your experiences with Tommy Toon, for example. Uh, I think the qualities of a good director, uh, when you get to your rehearsal stage, I'm going to start there in terms of you know dealing with <clears throat> all of the people, dealing with the actors that a uh, director works with, dealing with... Uh, the author dealing with the composer is uh, basically to be open to the people that you work with, to listen to everything that they have to say, uh, to digest everything that they have to say, and then, uh, you know, really sift through it and uh, take what that person can use. And that probably is, is the most valuable contribution at that point. I won't go back to pre-production and when we start. But basically is to be with the people, to be open with the people, and to use the people that that person is selected to work with. How did you find it working with Tommy Toon, for example? Well, Tommy and I have been friends for many, many years, uh, so I know how open he is, and I know how he uses people. Uh, he finds qualities within people that they don't even know that they have. Uh, and he works very hard in nurturing those qualities out of uh, actors, composers, uh, authors, that they might not even be aware that they, they have. And uh, that is a very, very special quality. And I think that's probably what makes for the finest directors, really being able to use what is directly in front of them, seeing what is there, hearing what is there, and being there. And then discarding what can't be used and just zoning into what is there and bringing that to the fore. Tommy is a, is a uh, interpretive director. I mean, the, the strongest thing... I mean, it would be wonderful if he would have a play from beginning to end, and we almost have it with Cloud Nine. We made some structural changes in the act. Uh, but when the material is really there, and he can purely interpret what is there, he can bring his thing to it. If he has to create it along the way, that's not his strongest gift. He really is an interpreter. To go home and go, all right, now... What should we do there? Blah, 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 blah. He can do all of that, but basically, if it's if he has it or has a lot of it, he can really bring it to the surface and then put his quality on top of it. But if it's there, he uses what is there uh, better than most of the people that I've seen or worked with. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you go about choosing a director? I want to go back to that okay. a second, if I can, on that. 
But I think directors, is being a director has got to be one of the most difficult jobs anybody could choose. It's got to be the loneliest. I mean, who are you going to talk to, the producer? Um, <laughs> right now? <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's got to be so lonely out there because, you know, assumedly you and the, t the producer agreed on a vision. The actors think they can do it without you. In fact, they know they can do it without you. I mean, I remember an absolutely fabulous story about Ethel Waters on the opening night of his eyes on, um, on, um, and, uh, Member of the Wedding. Thank you very much. Uh, member of the wedding. Uh, Harold Clerman was the director. Not a bad director in his time. And at that, just about then, Ethel had gotten religion. And she kind of had a prayer meeting on stage before the curtain came up. And she had all the actors with their, ha their hands joined the circle. And she was going on and on about this great play and dear Lord, bless these wonderful actors in this stage. And on and on into this very long kind of revivalist thing. It went on and on and on, holding the curtain. And finally, as she rose to her greatest pitch, she said, And dear Lord, please don't let Mr. Clerman come back at the intermission and fuck us up. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that sometimes, not maligning Miss Waters, but I think actors sometimes feel that about directors. And certainly the set designer always has problems with the director because the director wants a grand plan he or she can work with and the designer wants to make credit and so on I mean it's a it's a really lonely job you need certainly vision a sense a center of oneself that can get yourself out of the way for about eight weeks and certainly the ability to give the actors the poor blessed actors who have to go out on the stage naked every night the inner core, the confidence, the trust, whatever you want to call it, the filled feeling to dare. Because unless an actor is going to go out and take a chance on stage, you're going to get a mundane evening in the theater, which is okay. You know, 85% of what we see is. But that 15% that takes off, that convinces an actor or actress to go that extra bit, to dare, to expose a little bit more, to trust the director and the playwright boy that's what it is because every night you know we are all home counting our money every night according to the actors and the actor has to be out there selling it every night and somehow the director has got to have given him something that makes him dare every night and gets his tail out of the house into the theater every day for eight bloody performances a week. This isn't like movies. We're not doing something every day. We've got to sell the same thing every single performance and keep it so in their head and so centered that it doesn't deviate. Yes, a good stage manager is an adjunct to a director and a producer's best friend. But it is what the director gave the actors during those four weeks of rehearsal or six weeks in a musical, during the out-of-town triad, during the previews, that gets them out there every night. It's so much of it, I think, is developing the confidence, the confidence in the actor, too, that particularly a young director who's pretty smart uh, and knows exactly what he wants, and uh, just is figuring out how he's going to get these bastards to to uh, turn it out for him, is not going to do him much good, himself much good, or the playwright much good, or 
the production much good. It's that uh, relationship, I think, to the actor that he must develop. So mm -hmm. the actor is willing uh, not only to dare, as uh, Nell was saying, but also uh, not to go overboard when he feels that he is uh, just really in the vein. And to maintain that balance, that discipline on the stage and to be so concerned about what he is doing in relation to the whole production that it uh, turns into something that the customers are going to want to see. Judith, what about um, choosing your creative team that's working with you? Do you feel that the uh, producer should play a large role in that, particularly when you go out into situations where maybe they're using local people? Unfortunately, I have very little control over that. Mm -hmm. I wish I could bring some set designer, some costume designer that I've worked with on things and, and whom I trust and love to the regions, but they, that's, the producer likes to do all that himself. And very often some are local people or they've made their lives there. <coughs> In places like the Cleveland Playhouse, you have a rec company, the actors have homes and babies and everything. And so do, <laughs> <laughs> so do the people on the artistic staff. Uh, except for the occasional guest directors that are brought in. So I have very little control, and sometimes, uh, most of the time, it works fine. Sometimes I'm saddled, as it were, and there's nothing I can do about it uh, except try to make it work for me. At other times, you get extraordinarily creative people way out west or wherever they are that make your show an incredible show. Um, I've done Side by Side by Sondheim many times. And the first time I did it, the set designer who was from Seattle just had a marvelous idea that hadn't been done in New York. It was to make, to make the show in the sort of place where one of those people would live, a penthouse apartment. Uh, and the windows became the area for slides. Well, it, it was just a damn good idea, and I went along with it, and it came out to be just a superb show. And every time I did it, with whomever I did it. I did it that way because it seemed to work so well, especially for people that have never seen Sondheim shows. When you get way out there, they haven't. Some of them have never heard the music. They, they weren't aware, really, of how important Sondheim was to the musical theater. So by doing this, somehow, it told the tale. It set the scenes for them in such a way that they really came out saying, my God, this guy is great. Now, this came from the set designer, whom I'd never met before, who's a professor at the University of Washington or whatever, so I think there are some marvelous people all over the country, and it doesn't really matter if you, if you luck out and get them. What about in the industrial realm? Because you've done some, some directing uh -huh. and choreography in, in the industrial world. Um, how does that work? I, one would not expect the producers to be as familiar or have a support team that they're used to using. Well, they usually do, particularly because there are so many slides involved, and they usually have a slide house that they use regularly and a man that sets the sheets up or whatever they've got. Usually the sets are pretty simple. Sometimes you can... Um, I did a lot of shows for DuPont, and they were like little dramas, and I hired my own people for that. But um, most of the time, the producers... Um, now, I produced... This was an interesting experience. Last year, I produced a show for the Pittsburgh Symphony, and I had to hire all the creative people. So I had to do a lot of questioning, I did a lot of phone calling to find out who might be the best person for this particular theater, best lighting person, and so on. And um, 
I came out with good people because I asked the right questions. But it's a hell of a responsibility to budget correctly and come out so that you have a little money left and so on. Because as a director, you get your salary and that's that. But So it was uh, good and hard. Yeah, but in the commercial theater, I mean, the director has a lot to say, mm -hmm. of course, for very good reason. I mean, I'm right, guys? Right. <laughs> I mean, uh, for very good reason. I mean, uh, uh, sure, if the director says to me they want to hire a flunk to do, say, the costumes, and Liz and I have had a particularly unhappy experience in the past with that designer, and, the, you know, we are we might say, do you have a second choice you can live with? I mean, is it imperative? I mean, I'm not picking on costume designers, please. I'm just picking that out of the hat. We might say that, but by and large, a director, we all come with baggage, for heaven's sakes, and they come with the baggage of knowing people whose work they either admired or they've worked with and can talk shorthand to. Um, and it makes sense. Uh, a first-rate, a top-door director will have the right in his contract to do mm -hmm. that. Uh, someone who's not will have right of consultation or whatever, not, you know. But... Uh, by and large, the director, you know, when you finally get a director to agree to direct your play, uh, you'll sit down with him or her and say, okay, you got any designers in mind, got anybody in mind, and they'll say, well, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, they'll name people, they're usually people that they've had a history with, a pleasant one. Mm -hmm. Michael, when, when do you think a producer should step in and alter a director's work? Would you like to talk about that area? You've worked in so many areas of the theater, I think, not necessarily from your experiences as producer, but from other experiences. Well, I think that, that it, like everything in life, I mean, timing is what it's all about. And uh, it can be early in a production and it can be late in a production. I think that's something that you have to feel as you go along. And if you're, again, in touch with what is happening uh, on all levels, you can either see something that is going to work, or uh, you can be ahead of the game and feel, well, hey, that isn't going to work. And you just wait until the proper time for the director, for the company, for the financial aspects as well. You may have to stop certain things before they go into production. But that's that happens at all different stages. I think a producer has to be there uh, in terms of the connection with, with his director at all times. Uh, to so that they are there to help them and protect them if they feel something is coming up uh, which will be a, a hazard to the piece. So you can't really be specific as to when that happens. I mean, sometimes a producer has to say it before you go into production. Sometimes you have to uh, give your director a lot of time because some people are faster than, than others. Mm -hmm. uh, every situation is different. Again, you can have a fast director, but you can have three actors that are very slow. And if you're in tune with that, and your director's in tune with that, he has to wait for his actors to blossom or to push them at a, a specific time to make them... You can't really make people move faster than their own guts will, you know, or will allow them to do. Uh, but uh, you just have to be there, and it, and it happens at all different times. There's no one specific time. The wrong time is when you will interfere with the creative process. That I know. I mean, if you say something at the wrong time, you can really hurt something that is beginning to flower or blossom, and that can be detrimental. Go ahead, T, your turn. I'll remember the thought. <laughs> Hopefully, you uh, have some rapport with the director, too, as producer. 
which certainly is going to stand you in good stead if you have to sort of make your relationship at the first preview or after the first preview uh, felt, then you're in deep trouble and probably everybody else is. So that if there can be a certain amount of back and forth and there can be a certain amount of, uh, of uh, discussion as you go along, it makes it infinitely more uh, helpful when you really get down to trouble or when you get down to the tough going. See, I kind of, the word alter bothers me in this because <laughs> I think the hierarchy of the commercial theater, I can't speak to anything that I don't know very well, but the hierarchy of the commercial theater came about over a period of years for specific reasons. Liz and I tend to be very chary of, of many-headed folk. I mean, we like a director, and we like a choreographer, and we like, you know, everybody does something, because everybody feeds in and has done, nobody's wearing too many hats. And their areas of responsibility are pretty well delineated. Okay, every once in a while you get an extraordinary person like a Michael Bennett or a Tommy Toon, but they back themselves up with other people, Tommy with Tommy, uh, Michael with Bob, etc. But I think if you're talking about alter, once you're in production, boy, you guys didn't agree on what was going to happen for starters. Uh, I prefer to look at it from a different angle um, and say, at a certain point, we expect, Liz and I expect the director to suggest, why don't you come to rehearsal and take a look? We don't go unless asked. We tell the directors from the beginning, let us know when you want another set of eyes in. It usually happens along around week three in a straight play, the end of week three, somewhere like the beginning of week four. Director said, we're going to stagger through it today. Why don't you come down? Which is always a very tense time. The actors fall back and regress immediately. I guess some of that stems from the fact that I spent a long time being a stage manager and remember that once you introduced an alien to rehearsal, the rehearsal process got nervous. Mm -hmm. uh, God forbid you should ever walk into a rehearsal hall with an, another person who's unknown to the actors, because they'll think it's their replacement. <laughs> Honestly, I promise you. I mean, am I right, guys? Or the director thinks it's his replacement. <laughs> so, I mean, you're always warned, please, stage manager, hello, this is now. I'm coming down with someone from the ad agency today. Please tell everybody it's from the ad agency. Post a notice to let everybody know. But after that first time that we've seen it, we usually expect the director to say, feel like having a cup of coffee or a glass of wine afterwards or something. I'm going to let the guys go and let them think about it. You know, they'll have staggered through and let them stew in it for a while and let them think. And then I expect the a, a director to tell me where he or she thinks he is in the show. Mm -hmm. I don't expect to tell him, because after all, he theoretically has a work pattern, a work pro a work uh, program. program, thanks, Mel, in mind, that he is working his way through, that, that, that the the company and he or she are finding their way through. If the director's perception and Liz and my perception is extremely divergent, Liz and I smile very prettily, 
and say, gee, isn't that nifty, and go away and, you know, start calling agents. That has frankly never happened with us. But I would at that point. Usually the director is bang on. Now, we have been exceedingly lucky. We have worked with some of the greatest directors in the world. And it is, we are extremely fortunate. So that process works very well. Usually out of town or during the previews is when you're sitting and talking about, once again, where do you think you are? So-and-so's lagging. I haven't gotten this. Have you noticed this? No, I haven't noticed that. Well, maybe it links up here. But to say to a director, alter something, and I think Michael was making this point too, that you really don't talk, it's not altering. You are helping them finish their work and making it somehow. But you are not walking up, you cannot walk up to a creative person and say, change that. It is the quickest way to shut down a creative mind. And frankly, if I did that to a director, I hope he or she would call his agent immediately or tell me, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Because you don't order creative people around. There is no such thing as, a, you know, a dictatorship in the theater. It don't work. If the producer's ultimate weapon is to close the show and or the checkbook. One or the other. But there is a tyranny of talent. Mark my words. You guys have much more power over us than we over, over you. Because after all, you have the control of the talent, and we do not. You are the talent. We are not. Our talent, hopefully, is for putting you all together right, giving you enough money to do it, and not fucking you up. Are there any other comments on that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Michael, you were saying. No, it's, it's, she's absolutely right on, I think. Yeah. The producer who cares is going to do it right, I think. I mean, Warren Enters once said, as a director, it's a very good friend of his, has said something once that I thought was marvelous. He said, producers, I love them. They come to you and they say, God, what is the problem with the end of the second act? Jesus, it's really not working. And you look at it and you say, it's working perfectly. What is the matter? And you sit all night and sit all night and think, well, all of a sudden you realize you haven't set it up right. It's working fine on its own, but the lead-up to it is all wrong or something. We may say the wrong thing, but at least we get you thinking. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What about the relationship with the author? Since the producer and the director often have, particularly in a new um, piece, the author plays a part. I mean, is there a, is there a good, healthy team relationship there, or is... Do you have to take sides or against? Or? The T's produce more new authors than anybody you're in. Mm -hmm. You're most happy if you can maintain the relationship with, which was there uh, at the beginning between director and author. If it gets to be a problem, I think generally uh, that you... Uh, make some sort of decision in your own mind as to where uh, you want to go, whether it's a question of keeping the lid on, uh, whether uh, it's better to somehow get the uh, playwright to stay away for a while and see what the director does. It's a very ticklish situation and uh, until you uh, get Things uh, straight. Certainly, in in, in uh, plenty of plenty of times, you've got a playwright 
who is fit to be tied and fit to be tied right through the time that the play opens and is still not happy about it when he does. I know, I've had playwrights. I mean, if you have a playwright like Peter Schaffer, it's one thing. Peter Schaffer's self-critical powers are so highly developed that as you head for the back of the house to tell him the scene isn't working, he said, no, darling, I'm off to write. <laughs> Peter and I have already talked about it, darling, I'm off to write. I mean, we had 13 count of confrontation scenes in the middle of the second act of Amadeus. I guess we picked the right one. Um... But it just keeps getting rewritten and rewritten. On the other hand, you can have a Tom Stoppard who, when asked to do some work, said, Pinter doesn't change a comma. <laughs> I, that's the tyranny of talent. Um, it so, varies widely with the and Within that, within that, I mean, in a musical, my God, you're going through changes all the time in running orders and all that. Yes, but I, I believe that... Uh, before you go into production is the time when the producer uh, has to really take care of the author and communicate with the author uh, to, to make your strongest points before production happens. Uh, once, once you're either into rehearsals or into workshop, whatever the case may be, uh, I think the director is the boss, the director is the man. Uh, that's the way the company has to relate to that person. And I think the author and composers also have to relate to that person as well. So what I do is I work with the authors before, and from the moment workshop or uh, rehearsals begin, I then, uh, I, don't, I don't stay away, but I then have the communication between the director and the author from that point on. And if there is something uh, that I want to say, I go through my director mm -hmm. to my author from that point. Uh, it's very helpful to do that one. <clears throat> authors are, I mean, again, going back to should they be in rehearsal or shouldn't they? I and mean, that's entirely up to the director. Sometimes the director and the actors want the freedom to say, gee, how am I going to say this line? What am I going to do with that? On the other hand, sometimes having the author there makes them try to make the line work and see what the author was after originally. Um, it's a really, it, it's really dealer's choice. I mean, some authors can't even bear to be around rehearsal. They get so nervous and Jerky. I mean, they they want to do everything but be there. You know, it's just too nervous making for them to be there. And of course, they drive everybody else around the twist. Mm -hmm. uh, during the casting process is when an author can be extremely and here's a funny word troublesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, set aside the fact that a female author wants her boyfriend to be in the play or a male or something like that, um, and it happens. <laughs> it happens. Um, Sometimes the authors, bless them, they don't always know what they've written. And they may have a vision that ultimately won't work, and the director has a tough time convincing them. They do have casting approval right smack in the middle of their, you know, writer's guild contract. Driving guild contract, long time. Um, I mean, ultimately, it should be the director who says who the cast is, because after all, it's he or she who's going to have to get the performance out. It's that responsibility. So there has to be a persuasion and a feeling between the two of them of trust. But sometimes it just doesn't work. Sometimes it's not personal, you know, like I want my boyfriend or girlfriend or wife or uncle or whatever in the show. But it's just, you know, a vision isn't the same, and 
at that point, either the producer has to moderate or you send them off together and see which one emerges from the, you know, victorious. One has to convince the other. Because you cannot have a rehearsal situation where there's constantly sniping, where there are others saying, of course the scene isn't working. You know, that idiot was, you know, wasn't in the scene and it worked. Or the director can't be the... Nothing. I mean, you gave me that actor. You made me take the actor. I know he's on a run of the play contract, and it'll cost you $45,000 to buy him out, but if you want the play to work, you'll get rid of him, because I didn't want him in the first place. We're now back to, you know, you can't make people work together who cannot work together. You've seen it. Uh -huh. What you're saying is very often, you know, an author will, will write something and see a character in one very specific way, and his vision of that character will be this wide, whereas the director will read a, a script and all of a sudden open it to there and they'll see an actor out there and they'll go, well, that actor has this thing, but that actor also has eight other things which can be used to uh, fulfill that, you know, that vision, uh, which the author may not even see, and it's true, an author can get in the way. Uh, I, I usually, work, we work as a group so that all four people, or well, on nine it was four of us, so we had all had to decide on who would get the job. And that way, uh, there, were, there were a lot of discussions. We went on late into the night, but everybody had to decide and agree upon each person in the show. Yeah, I mean, it's a good way. I mean, we all on the audition committee do have input, but ultimately it has to be the director who said, oh, believe me, I can make this actor do this role. I mean, I was in Boston once with a play called Otherwise Engaged by Simon Gray. Nice play. And Harold Pinter was directing. And one of my one of uh, Liz's my partners in the show came up and said, "That girl's not working, and that guy's not working. They got to be fired. Out, out, out." And Harold said, "What?" Mm. And she's going to be fired. Out, out, out. And Harold said, "Well, I haven't finished my work." And he said, "What do you mean?" He said, "It's my I hired this person, these two people." By New York, they will be ready. I haven't finished my work. It is my responsibility as director of this play to get them to do it, and they will do it. And you know what? That's right. They both got beautiful notices in New York. But, I mean, Harold's attitude was, it's my responsibility as director of this show to get these people to do it. It's just taking a little longer. And in one case, it was an actress who'd never appeared semi-nude on stage before, and she was scared wetless. I mean, she had to growing to the fact that she was going to be semi-nude on stage. And she was opening in her hometown. Of course she was scared out of her mind. <laughs> I think a lot also has to do with what you just described is not the way to tell anybody that something has to be done anyway. Uh, if only producers, when they do feel strongly about something, would remember to take the director aside, speak to him quietly, not you sort of shout and scream at him on that the Because everybody's so rattled. <laughs> but no, but many producers do that. Many producers do that. Many producers rush to you in front of everybody and tell you what they think. Many producers pull actors aside, your actors that you've hired, and give them notes, mm -hmm. which you don't Sometimes know about. do that, too. Yes, and you don't know about it until the next day at rehearsal. The actor is doing something different. Why? Oh, so-and-so spoke to me and asked me. Well, that's terrible. So we panic too. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we panic too. I mean, look, it says directed by, but it also says produced by. I mean, we're all proud of mm -hmm. our names. Sure. I mean, it really, 
We get scared, too. I mean, you see, I'm very lucky. I don't know about the rest of you guys if you always work with the same people. Liz and I always work together. I mean, we always have each other. So, I mean, that gives us the strength for ourselves. You know, we know what the other one's going through. It's kind of nice. So we have someone to talk to and get nervous with. You know, not everybody has that privilege. We get frightened. We make mistakes. Yeah, we do pop off. You know, and say something at the wrong time in the wrong place and screw everybody's minds up. And, uh, <laughs> try not to, but you know, of course it happens. T, when you're choosing a, a director, what are the what are the things you're looking to avoid? Someone who will do what Nell was describing in the first go around. <laughs> no, I think somebody who has some sort of a, uh, a record, some a record of performance, something that I've seen that fills me with wonder and delight, and uh, that uh, he or she is going to be able to handle the actors and get them to do what he wants and not behave like uh, Captain Bly on the uh, on the. Uh, stage or in the house but it goes back to the importance of the director certainly in our uh, theater and that you repose tremendous trust in him and uh, if everything goes to pot then at everybody's peril you fire the director but uh, that isn't a very good solution now I, this may sound funny but the first thing I check, aside from do I think the director is, is going to be the right one, Liz and I are talking about, who do you think? And of course, some projects come with directors. But setting that aside, is the director available? Now, this may seem like a dumb thing to say, but in this world of directors, needless to say, wanting to make money and support families and things like that, they do films, television, regionals, New York. And Liz and I will not accept a contract that dates and authors end immediately after what the scheduled opening is. That means the director's not available. Because there are always delays, the possibility of a delay, for any one of thousands of reasons. And if a director has to leave a project at a certain point, it puts the project on a, coll uh, on a collision course that could endanger the project. So if I'm planning to open April 28th and the director has to leave me April 30th, I have to believe that that director is not available for the project because there has to be some kind of leeway. Stars get sick. They break legs. Theaters burn down. Authors dry up. Anything, 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 anything can happen. And what you don't want is to have to open a show too early when a few days more would have would have put everything together neatly. You don't want to be ripped untimely uh, just because the director has to go to an opera in San Francisco or a film where or whatever he or she has to do. So well I think, really, yeah. something I've learned along the way. Yeah, we've all said, been burned. What you just said, yes, definitely. Can I answer that question? Sure. Because you know, aside from all of these things that people have already said, uh, which I do look for, and very specific. It can be very specific. With each play, you're looking for a different uh, talent that the director might have. So aside from that, uh, something that I look for is uh, it's a, on a human level. I, I want to work with people that are not pretentious. 
I think pretension on a stage is uh, what puts up this wall between an audience and what is happening on stage. Uh, you know, certain directors create conceits for their productions, which are theatrical conceits, but they can still be human. And as soon as, as soon as if, if you meet someone, or a director, we're talking about directors, and you feel a pretentious quality, or you feel that there are pretentious people, you can almost, you, you know inevitably that what they're going to put on stage is not going to have a human touch with the people in the audience. And I stay away from those pretentious people, you know, that talk real good theater, but don't have that human connection. Uh, because I think there's a barrier there between pretension and actually what's happening in the everyday world. And I think people uh, don't get what you're trying to do up there if a, if a director is pretentious. So I really get into that human quality as well. I wish directors had senses of humor. You know how real <laughs> I gotta tell you, going through a play through a producer can be really tough sledding. And you want someone around occasion to give you a couple of laughs. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? I like to laugh. I mean, my friend Mr. Bernhardt, he was always good for a good laugh. I mean, it's a pleasure. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, it's really neat to be able to go out and have a drink and laugh. Uh, in the midst of it all, True. you know, and that has to do with your pretension, because people are pretentious, can't have a good laugh, really? and boy, you need to relieve the pressure from time to time on everybody. Well, it certainly helps between the director and the company. Oh, boy, yeah. Oh, boy, yeah. I'd like to turn to another subject now, money. In this uh, current difficult economic climate, um, how, how is the economic climate affecting um, producers? And maybe, T, you'd like to talk about it first. Most favored nations for a modest figure all around. So I'll turn it back to Nell on this because I hope to learn something, too. Well, I mean, clearly the producer's charge always is is to get a budget together that will let the creative people realize their vision, but that it can be the capital can re be recouped in a reasonable amount of time, and the theater doesn't have to be too big for the play. There is no point in putting the gin game into the Imperial Theater or having a budget that makes the gin game have to go into the Imperial Theater. You're going to destroy that play. So you have to come up with a budget and a director with the vision who agrees with you that the gin game should be in either the booth or the golden. Therefore, we have to keep our artistic view such that it will be in the theater. <coughs> I mean, so there's no point in saying that nine need, had to be in the Biltmore. I mean, it couldn't have worked. They had to come up with a concept, and the director and you know, the designers had to all agree with the producer that this is what we could do and what we needed to do it. And I usually tell the set designers what the budget limitations are and say, do you think you can do it for this? Because there's no point in them designing the Taj Mahal when all we can afford is a shack in Newark. Mm -hmm. Do you start out by developing your budget before you put your team together? Well, yes and no. The yes is everybody knows a one set, four character straight play, you know, with certain givens is going to cost between X and X if it isn't moved directly in from, from someplace. 
I mean, we tend to budget a very heavy advertising budget because the decisions are extremely simple for a producer if you've got rape, 15 straight rave notices or 15 straight pans. It's seven of each <laughs> for eight and seven that really you sit there and say, what am I going to do? Do I close it? Do I keep it open? If you've got a decent advertising reserve, the decision is easier. You can get in there, you can support your show and see if there's an audience out there for it. Um, that's a producer's job to support his creative people. Uh, if you go too short, you're going to have to close what might be a piece of work that gradually caught on, or that by letting it run for a while, you enhance stock and amateur, or a movie sale, or something like that. That's our job. We, we have to do that. Michael? It's interesting that you jumped over to the advertising, because while you were speaking, that's what I was thinking about, uh, besides a certain amount for the set and costumes, etc., uh, and alerting your creative people to what they have financially to do it. I remember the uh, first the first show which I produced was Cloud Nine, and uh, I had not worked with an ad agency before, so I was out shopping around, <coughs> talking to the different executives at the advertising agencies, and I told them, and I knew what my budget was for advertising on an off-Broadway show, and I knew that it was teens, uh, and I went around to a few of them, and I told them they knew what the budget was, and I said, this is what I need from you. And two of them said to me, I'm, well, one of them, let's say one of them said to, said to me, Michael, uh, you have great dreams. There's no way that I can give you what you want for that $3,500 a week that you're offering. And I thought that was pretty honest of them, and they turned the job down. Well, I went to the other agency that I, that I had decided not to go with today. I, the first one, I went back to them and said, all right, well, you all got the job. Now we have to make it work for this $3,500 to $5,000 a week. Well, we did. And we still do it. We have still stayed under our, our weekly advertising budget. And we have sent out a lot of great advertising. So it just proved to me at that point that I stuck to my guns and I knew what I wanted and I knew what I needed and I knew I wanted to do some adventurous things in advertising. And it really is possible to do. Uh, after people have turned you down and said, no, there is no way to do it. So if a designer or a designer says, no, I can't do it for that, uh, like the ad agency says, and I know what I have, uh, I know that it can get done. That was a very strong lesson for me. I had this $3,500, and I worked within that budget, and we stuck on it, and it worked out very well for us. So if someone would say, no, I can't, I would say, well, I'm sorry, that's all you have. Either you have to make it possible for that, or moving right along, you know? I want to go back to something Michael sort of started to say and then glanced off. I would say in answer that a direct, when you ask what you look for in a director, I would say a director also has to be willing, if the direct producer asks it, to develop the project. I mean, I think the people <coughs> who produced Nine were brilliant about doing that workshop and getting their act together, getting their show together. Well, I have heard from time to time, and, and directors say, I don't do workshops. Well, where are we going to do the work? I mean, we can't audition a show on 45th Street. By that, I mean, we can't play games on 45th Street. You can't even play them in Boston anymore. I mean, you can lose, even with stars in Boston, a quarter of a million dollars a week. So, I mean, a director has to be willing, I think, in this day and age, to want to develop the project. 
either to take it out into the regionals if you can get a uh, get a, uh, a production there, or do it you know in wherever down at Michael Bennett's studio on Theater Row, someplace like that to work on the material. But you know, besides the financial aspect of that, it's a sign of the times. In order to create a better society that we to live in, for all of us to live in, we all have to learn to live and play together. Mm, and uh, it's it's no longer 30 years ago where there were very, very fine craftsmen that sat down <coughs> and wrote very beautiful plays that one could absolutely mount. And that's another time where people went away and buried themselves and were devoted to their crafts. <coughs> and then they handed you this thing, and it was amazing. It blew you away. Well, we don't get that many plays these days that absolutely blow you right. away. You read so many so many things and you go, well, that part of it is wonderful, but then there's this and this and this and this and this. Okay. And you need a group of people to sit down and make this thing broad enough, big enough, fine enough to present to a group of people. But it really is a sign of the times in order, I feel that people have to get together to work and play together. And that's part of what workshop is about, which probably should be called play shop. I have difficulty with that word, workshop to get together and make it as one. And uh, as I say, it really is about I think that says it too, don't you, about the director. If he's not prepared to, or his tastes and his experience is such that it doesn't allow him to to uh, start there, then you probably wouldn't want to have him around no matter what he did. Does the present economic climate provide an opportunity for that? You're talking that you can lose so much money. Well, I think a producer at this point wants, you know, to be able to get the material in good shape before they go flat out. And it's, you really want to give people a sheltered place to work where the, you're not sitting with a shotgun, you know, trained on you. I mean, I've got to think that the, the pressure on a young author has got to be, even on a ten-time author, it's got to be extraordinary. I mean, when you know that in five weeks, four weeks, three weeks, two weeks, one week, tomorrow, Frank Rich will be here. I mean, you can really cramp the people's ability to experiment, the director's ability to get an actor to dare. Actors go back when they are terrified to the thing they did best, whatever it was. Whatever it was, they just fall back on the tricks, the easy things. Mm -hmm. They don't dare. You get into a play shop. I like that. Good. You, you get them into some protected atmosphere, and they are often more willing to dare, to take, to take chances, to try something, to toss it out. I mean, and these are pros. We're not talking about kids playing. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, we're talking about top-flight talent, seasoned directors, seasoned authors will do it just as well as the new people. And I think it's the only way that a producer will take a chance on new people is if they will go off and work mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. Judith, does the regional theater offer that opportunity <coughs> sufficiently today? Well, there are some theaters, the larger theaters have sort of experimental programs as adjuncts to, uh, to their regular season. And they do offer a chance for young authors and or an idea on the part of this, the um, artistic director, let's say. Uh, to bring in a director or an author to develop a script with the people that may be currently performing on the main stage production. Um, I was involved in something like that in Pittsburgh a few years ago. Uh, it was an idea of the artistic directors. We called it Campaign Relief. And he wanted to do a musical review of 
all the campaign, presidential campaign songs in our history. So I got a friend of mine to do the research, and we had this huge mountain of songs. And then I read, I sat in Pittsburgh with five history books and put together a sort of running script, a continuity kind of between. And I did it in sort of chronological order, and it was amazing, the presidents that had songs written about them and those that didn't. Uh, but I included everybody. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. It was a very experimental thing. It might be workable close to election time. I don't know. Uh, if he wants to do something with it, maybe we can. But there's a lot of that going on. But his program had to be canceled this year because of lack of money, lack of grants. So he's not, that whole plus six program, which had six experimental shows, is out. But other theaters are still doing it, theaters like Arena and so on. So there's a certain amount. Do you have anything to add to that? It seems to me that most of the, I know more about uh, Center Stage in Baltimore than any of the uh, others, but uh, everybody is working toward that, mm -hmm. and some of them are doing some very good work. Yeah. And certainly John Jory down there yeah. has got a powerhouse built up with the help of Humana. And uh, the, the wonderful things, I think, are coming out of... Uh, of the various uh, resident theaters. I'd like to open it up now for people in our large audience today to ask some questions. So whatever I haven't covered that you'd like to hear about. <coughs> yes. I would like to ask a question about the last comments that were made about uh, playing around with the scene or playing around with the rehearsal. Um, as long as 15 years ago, working with two very important method directors, Kazan and Robert Lewis. We were told the first day of rehearsal that if we didn't go in some direction by the end of the week, they were going to give us line readings. And I can remember a time when on Broadway, it's amazing to hear you, as you might say, except for my friend over there, uh, younger people uh, talking about that kind of thing when uh, 10 years ago, if an actor looked like he was going to begin to experiment, inspire us, there was such a loathing for experimentation in a role, the first few days of rehearsal, method actors were a bad name. And both directors, Mr. Kazan and Robert Lewis, actually said to the members of the cast, if you are not going in some kind of direction by the end of the five days, that we want you while you were hired, we were going to give you wine readings. Can anyone answer that? It's unanswerable. It's a statement rather than a question. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you would state a question, so you can be specific. Yes, what I'm trying to say is that... Well, they had the right idea. They have the right idea. Is that what you're saying? Do you agree or disagree with that? To a certain degree, they had the right idea. They were using people that they had selected to uh, portray these characters and they wanted they saw something within these people that they knew was going to help their play and they wanted to get that out of the people and they wanted the people to have the opportunity to take the risk and to bring themselves to those characters without the, I'm sure they, they certainly gave them ideas to work with and they expected them to go home or instinctively to to work on it and bring it out and they went right I like that use that have that no I don't like that you know they would edit the work for you if you if you did your part of the job Sure. Uh, yes, except that 
what I'm, the point that I'm wanting to make was there is a pressure uh, put upon the actors and the director from the very first day of rehearsal and given to believe that you've got five days to prove yourself because after that we can't hire you. No, that clause is out of the equity contract. Well, not, not then. But, doesn't but, exist anymore. But the thing is that um, even today with rehearsals, I don't see anywhere where directors, I mean, where actors are allowed to experiment or work toward what you say uh, to be able to find something in the world to take that extra 15 percent <clears throat> that that would help the performance and make it out of the audience. I think it's up to, up to the director to he's got to really handle the pressure for the actors. And uh, if he feels that somebody isn't getting anywhere, uh, he's going to do something about uh, trying to um, give them some support to bring them into line, maybe do just to fulfill his own uh, idea of what he wants them to be. And he may, I would say, do any uh, sort of a ploy to, uh, to, uh, to make something happen in them. Everybody works at a different speed. The, the poor director is stuck <coughs> with bringing everybody along pretty close to each other without cramping their styles. Because, I mean, somebody like Geraldine Page works so slowly. Jessica Tandy even slower. These are major actors, actresses. When they're working with other people, it can be extremely frustrating both to them because they know they're slowing things down but they can't work any faster but the director's got to keep everybody else interested. I I remember one time, I wasn't there but it was reported out there, Jesse was rehearsing with Hume a play called Gin Game which, in which 14 hands of gin are played and you can lose yourself <laughs> at any given moment and not know which game you're in. And Jesse, who is a very slow learner, was going crazy. I mean, literally going crazy. And Hume, who learns faster than anybody else on earth, I mean, one day rehearsal, he's got it then. <laughs> was going mad. And Mike Nichols, no mean director, was directing, and he was having problems, and Hume was having problems. But finally, Jesse was getting more and more nervous about the whole thing. They finally did a run through, and Jesse made it through the show. And sweat streaming on her face, she'd say, they're kind of shaking, I made it, I made it, I made it. You could see the little glow inside her, I made it, I made it, I made it. With which Hume said, Jess, are you going to play the third scene that way? <laughs> Mike, knowing that a moment was approaching that he had to do something, I said, I tell you what, guys, let's pick up here and we're going to run it through, I want to fix up something there. But he spoke without thinking, and he picked up just prior to the slap scene. <laughs> the stage manager started to say, Mike, as Jesse rolled. And everybody went like this. Jesse wound up. I, I mean, they said they heard the slap six blocks away. <laughs> she relieved attention of that rehearsal, all right. I mean, it was her husband and all that, but the director then had the problem of dealing with that. That the stars who were married to each other had just knocked each other out. <laughs> It, it's terrible trying to pull. I mean, I've watched directors when I was a stage manager, some with skill and some without skill, unable to deal with bringing the actor along. So I think what Michael is answering to you is saying, 
sometimes there's shock therapy, some things there's whatever, but they got to get people going. And when you're dealing with high-powered stars, for instance, who perhaps are extremely fast, say, and they're waiting for some little brand new kid to get a scene. Impatience can grow, and it's it's hey, it's not an easy job you guys have. And it's that <laughs> sense of timing of the director that makes. So I can uh, clarify something in my head. Uh, what when you actually refer to a play shop, you didn't mean actually this happening. Uh, let's say when the play starts rehearsing. Referring to a pre-rehearsal period. Yes, That's a pre-rehearsal period, which we now call workshop. Uh, yeah. But I also yes, and so I'm calling a play shop, just you know, to make it lighter in terms of hard work. I mean, it's all hard work, and and you know, hopefully we enjoy our work. Yeah, because uh, in that in that way, I think that the expectations of the producer, or for the director for that matter, are not very dissimilar to uh, to the directors of uh, the, the method may differ, but I don't think that. You know, the expectations of today's directors and producers are different from uh, the people that directed 15 or 20 years ago once the play gets into rehearsal. Well, hopefully, that's, the point that's that I'm true. Trying to make. Yeah, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Do any of you take a play, a new play that hasn't been done in the regionals or in a workshop, and how do you get a new play done? I mean, from a new author, it's not been done in England, it's not been done in uh, a regional or in a showcase in New York. Do you just, do any of you just read a play and say, yes, I want to do this? Because it seems impossible. I've I got to tell you, it's yeah. almost impossible it's to find a play that hasn't been done somewhere. I mean, Liz and I have two <laughs> plays now. We, ne we didn't see them done. One's called Total Abandon, which goes into rehearsal a week from Monday. That was done <laughs> elsewhere. We never saw it. We then financed a play shop for it last uh, July. We did 20, 36 performances close to the press at a 99-seat theater to let the director and the actors and the, the author work together. And we're doing another one's going into development. We happen to call it development period um, in April 5th, both by new American authors, both with skilled directors. Uh, they were done before, we are told. We did not see the production. But they came with reputation. No, no. In the case of both of them, we didn't know they'd been done. They were, but I mean, we have three play readers, and Liz and I read. We report probably 500 scripts a year out. Not to mention novels, screenplays, and whatever else. I mean, it looks like in our office looks like a scene from the producers. You know, when they were trying to find the play that was going to flop, and the scripts are everywhere. That's what it looks like. Well, that's certainly true with us too, in the same way. You do read a lot of scripts and then uh, oh, you sure, yeah. the script rather than it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you find that it was done somewhere and uh, that you don't really know anything about it until you uh, committed yourself. Well, yeah, and I'm a new producer. Uh, so, uh, and in, I guess, one or both of the bios in the different theaters, uh, it says, you know, that one of the reasons I devoted myself to being a producer was to create, uh, you know, a a showcase for new playwrights, composers, etc., people that haven't been produced before. So I'm always out there looking for new people. Uh, consequently, I get scripts from probably more new people than maybe uh, producers that have been doing it a long time that are much more established than myself. Uh, fortunately, after reading quite a few hundred plays, I found a play that I love. It's someone that's not been produced before. It's three people that have not been produced before. 
uh, and hopefully uh, we'll create something wonderful with that. I mean, that's the dream. That's the ultimate dream. Yes, I have a question sort of related to that. Um, because a good play is at a premium today, and you just expressed a, a willingness to produce uh, an unknown playwright and so on, what if, for example, a property came to you with a playwright and a director who had collaborated, say, in a workshop, and it somehow reached you, and they had worked on it together, the property is tangible, you've read it, it's a good play, you think it will run. The director has never worked on Broadway, but he has nurtured this play, uh, what, realistically speaking, are his chances of directing this play for him? Well, I think probably uh, they have less of a chance. Uh, I, it, I found over the years that people that have been out there a few times and have had two or three flops seem to have more of an opportunity than people that have not been out there even once to even prove that they have a gift. And I think that's awful, but that's kind of the, the way it has been. Uh, to answer your question, I think if a producer finds such a play and has enough of a belief in those people and that play, that person will get it on for them. If they don't, and if that person can get it on for them, uh, they will work as hard as they can to get it on for that unknown person. And that's just something you have to go for if you believe in it as a producer. I mean, it's unlikely a director is going to come to you with no experience. I mean, when you think of the fabulous number of opportunities, I mean, if a director's directed four or five times at the Guthrie or Arena or Long Wharf or whatever, that's an experienced director. That's not a nobody. That's a director who's been out there and proved him or herself. I mean, I was really impressed by skirmishes. That young woman is just marvelous, but she's, you know, she's 34 years old, but, I mean, you look at her resume, she's directed 20, 25 plays out in the regionals. New plays, old plays, classics, revivals, the woman's been working. She's a working director, you know, so if she came with a project, I couldn't call her a director right. who hadn't been down the track. Right, well, I didn't, I wasn't. You know, I'd, I'd ask that she surround herself with maybe some of the people who'd been down the track, <coughs> designers, whatever, who'd kind of been through it, you know, and a cast maybe that had been through it. You know, some experience, but, I mean, clearly these people are people who, they've got track records. They just don't happen to have it on 45th Street, but that doesn't. Still you mentioned before that uh, you would trust the director's vision. Obviously, you hired the director, and uh, and also felt that the director cast the people. It's up to him, her, to take them along. Now, what happens theoretically if, in a casting session, the director wants one person for a lead role, you want somebody else, and the playwright? Uh, agrees with you. We talked about that before when we said you can't force talent to work with each other that cannot get along. Um, I mean, clearly, Liz or I, anybody's going to say, hey, listen, you happen to pick somebody who's known to be a lush or walks out and plays or something like that. You give them <coughs> information. And I mean, you may say, look, I mean, that guy's walked out on his last three plays. I mean, don't really. But you would have agreed on that before. You wouldn't have gotten to an audition. So that. you think the director should have the final say on the casting? I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about personal things. Like He's got to get the performance and, out of him. Yes? Of course. 
And hopefully the author will agree with the director. But again, you've all agreed on the vision. I mean, as Michael was saying, well, but that's that's a, that's a word that I wanted to discuss. The vision is real important, so that your author, your director, uh, your composer, your choreographer, your designer, your lighting people have the same vision to begin with. So often people go into plays and there is a vision, but everyone has a little bit of a different vision of it. I think we were talking about what the producer's relationship to the director is. I find it real important for producers to keep that original vision together, to keep the designers and director and authors all in tune to that, that, that vision. Uh, I, as a performer, I, I, as a dancer, I was in many shows and I would do my job and I would look around and I would go, well, that designer's doing one show and that lighting person's doing another show and that author has created this thing and that director's doing another show. And uh, when, I, when I decided to become a producer, one of the things that was very clear in my mind was whatever the vision was, let's at least all go for the same thing. And that's a pretty hard thing to keep together, uh, that one vision. I'm curious about the communication of that vision uh, to each other in the pre, you know, before you're actually rehearsing. I mean, directors have all kinds of hopefully skills for communicating their vision to the actors, not even necessarily always articulately. Uh, if you can't call up ten actors, in the middle of the show, I'll show you what I mean. Have, have you any? Have any of you just things to say about the way you? successful stories for the communication of these visions, which are sometimes very abstract. I mean, they have to end up concrete. Well, sometimes you have a situation where an author and director work together all the time. I mean, up until Amadeus, Dexter and Schaffer work together all the time. You could pretty much bet that they have the same vision. Uh, uh, Marshall Mason and Lanford Wilson work all the time together, you can pretty much bet that they'll have the same vision, and so on. Uh, so that eliminates one problem with that group. But uh, normally... Communicated to you. What normally, Liz and I... When you have a situation like that, what are they going to communicate to me? You read the play. You well, know what their work like, looks They have communicated it to you. You so know you already what the they've done for years together. And one of the virtues of the director, the director that you want to have do your play, is he's able to provide that context and get it across to the team. But normally, I mean, when Liz and I sit down with the director and the author and ask one simple question, what is this play about? And usually, when in telling what the play is about, the author and the director tell you what their vision is. That's how they tell you, by when they define what the play is about. At least I think so. Uh -huh. Well, I have a, a different experience, because uh, Tommy and I have worked together on so many different things over the years. Uh, even though we are very different people and we have different opinions on many things, uh, our vision of theater is, is similar, so we have developed a style and a uh, language between the two of us that is as one. Uh, on Nine and Cloud Nine, what we did to just be sure that everyone was working on the same show is uh, we, when we, after I'd spoken to the designers and Tommy had spoken to the designers, uh, let's take Nine, we built our mock-up set, etc. And we would sit with the author, and we would sit with the composer, and we would sit with the lighting designer, and we would sit with the set designer with our little play stage for months. And we would go through the show 
over and over and over again so that they always knew what was coming up so that we were all playing on the same, playing the same game, so to speak. And with our little model and all, as we sat for hours, we would come up with even better ideas. Arthur would throw something in, or Maury would throw something in that we had forgotten or give us something new, so that we were all in that same tunnel together. There were uh, very few surprises. There were a lot of things we had to, or a lot of things Tommy had to talk the composer and author into, as I did too. But once they bought it, then they understood where we were going, and we would continue playing this little game. Of course, things change later on. You have to change certain things. But basically, we, we always were in the same world. We were always playing the same game. And you have to structure that right from the beginning. Uh, authors, uh, composers hear things. Authors hear things. They may not have the visual uh, visual uh, sensitivity. So as a producer, I made sure that they were going to get the visuals long before they ever got into the theater so that there wouldn't be any surprises. And they would know what they were going to get. And they could say either I love that or I hate that or I don't think that'll work. And then I would ask them, well, why don't you think that'll work? And if they had a good enough reason, uh, there was a reason for going off and trying something else. Uh, may I say something, uh, and I don't mean, I'm not arguing or disagreeing with you, except that it seems to me that most of these questions that are here seem to be involved in what do you do when there's a problem like that? Now, I've been involved with a Broadway play that was totally destroyed by five very important people who thought they had the original concept when they started out. I'm speaking of The Grass Harp by Truman Capote. Now, you speak of a pretentious director the author, who at the time we were all much younger than, was a very, very pretentious man. And Bobby Lewis, in a desperate time, Mr. St. Suber, the producer, wanted nothing to do with any disagreements. Um, all during the time, every control was had by Mr. Lewis, the director. Truman was kept quiet, and his disagreements, you know, when the disagreement started with the casting, Mildred Natwick in the league when he wanted Lillian Gish. Already he hated Northern Athlete in the beginning. Everything was wonderful until parade day when Mr. Cecil Beaton came out with the costumes. Here was a small little country town. Uh, had never been any place further than Baton Rouge. And he had hats like this with bird cages on them. He had silks and satins. It looked like a scene from My Fair Lady. Well, the shit hit the fan. And suddenly, the, the discussion, now this was like maybe two weeks before we opened in Boston. Uh, it seems to me that there's an element of having to be able to get along with that difficult director, with that egomaniacal author who refuses to leave rehearsals, or with an actress who has a drinking problem. This happens constantly in every production I have ever been involved in. It's wonderful to say, well, you know, stay away from that, stay away from this. And it's great of three guys have worked together forever. That's not the problem. What we would like to know is what do you do when there is a problem? What do you do when the director is Robert Lewis, a very temperamental, difficult man? Or Truman Capote, who thinks he knows everything. Who is the okay. you in this case? What, yeah? Who is the you in this case? What you. do you mean, what do you do? 
what, what as a producer what does the producer do what does the director do uh, when he's faced with he sees a Bobby Lewis went nuts and went to the costume and started ripping bows and well, how the hell how the hell can I see that yes I can't I mean I can't deal with a play that failed 25 years ago I mean it just seems to me that what we've all been talking about here is the fact at least to do with our plays that we are we put people together who are going with a vision we know what's going to come out the other end I mean, we know what the sets are going to look like and the costumes are going to look like and the actors are going to look like because we've all talked it out that happened I don't know what happened there I mean it sure as hell wouldn't happen on one of my shows because I'll have looked at the plates ahead of time and the director have looked at I mean they will have worked together they will have come and get show and tell and you either say yuck or it's wonderful <laughs> you know, I mean, it's silliness. I can't imagine. I mean, that happened. Uh, I can only it think. today. I think. <laughs> it happens every day. I don't think it happens with people with well, this gang. That's these are right. subjects. Probably will always what you're saying. I mean, that's you always have producer. to expect the unexpected, but the things that you're talking about, are that's not the unexpected. I mean. You know someone has a drinking problem, you know, or, or if the, you're having a costume parade and people haven't seen the sketches, I mean, or see, even seen the costumes, been to some fittings and seen how they will work on the actors. I mean, you have to know the space that you're working. I mean, those things have to be taken care of. That's just generally bad producing. Yes, it does happen. It still does happen. Fortunately, it's not happened for us thus, you know, thus far, and I don't want to <coughs> that, have that problem. That, I won't have that problem. That's absentee landlord problems. productions. Judith, does this happen in regional theater today? Uh, as I, don't, I don't think so. I think it's a matter of communication. If everybody talks, as, as uh, Mel says, then there won't, it won't happen. Uh, you can have differences with all these, with the designer, strong differences, but uh, um, you sh should know, I feel it's my fault if it comes out badly, because then I didn't look at it right, or I didn't really realize what the scale was of the set, and it came out oversized, and there are my two little dinky actors with a bed, you know, whatever it is. Uh, it, um, it's my fault. It's my fault. I didn't read the, the, the drawings correctly or something like that. But if everything is done ahead of time, why should it happen? Why should it? Unless the producer isn't always right. When you're talking about scale, I remember taking Edward Gorey to the Martin Beck Theater and saying, and putting the carbon and said, Edward, God, that is 35 feet in the air where that baton is now. You want the sets that tall? <laughs> and I said to the, to, I mean, to the director, that's what you want? The actors are this tall. And they went at me and went at me and went at me. And Liz finally said, give up, Mel. And boy, they were right and I was wrong. Yes, they was, that is what worked. They were absolutely bang on right. And I was wrong. <laughs> they talked me out of it. Yes. The name of the question is Who's Driving? Uh, Mel did Dracula, and above the title there were six names, and some of the names are traditional names of groups. I know on nine, Michael is the first producer, and there are others. Uh, how do you handle that, and would you like to comment on that sort of thing? Okay, I, I'd like to comment on that because I had a producer's meeting uh, the day before yesterday after nine months. <coughs> the show's been running nine months. Uh, at this point, and uh, there's six producers on the show, and I have a general partner. One of those producers, named Harvey Claris, is my general partner. The other people are all producers in the show, but not general partners, which I never held against them. I always listen to everybody. But uh, the first 
many months of the show. Getting the show up on, and thank God a success, was really, I had to take care of that. I listened to everybody. Again, I sifted through the stuff that they said. I used what I could and made my decisions and went with my guts on it and just did it. Nine months later, it's a different story. And at every producer's meeting, I would do the same. I would use what I could use. Uh, but nine months later, it's a different story. Uh, nothing is constant. And we are in a different place at this time. So at the meeting the other day, I re the night before, I realized it's, it's a different time, Michael. Go there with another... another I, I was always open, but I decided to even open myself more at this point because I felt as though there were other people in the room that had a lot of energy. And they've been giving me all this energy and support, but I've never taken specifically from them and really used them. And at this point, I felt for some gut reason that I needed, to, I needed some help. So I sat there at the producers' meeting, and I listened to all these people. And at the end of the day, I went home, and I went, Okay, I know how to use those three. I know what to do. I'm going to put those three people together and I'm going to make them work. I'm going to give them this exercise and work on these things and then present it to me. I'm going to take that woman. I'm going to pair her up with somebody else that is not a producer and I'm going to get something out of her. And there's a man over there. I'm not quite sure how I can use him to his fullest, but I'm going to find a way. And since then, I have found a way. So at first, I couldn't really use those people. But nine months later, I now know how to use those people well. Uh, before, there was too much, it wasn't that they were saying bad things, but it was too much interference with getting the show on and up. I had too much else to deal with, a full company, a director, a composer, getting the sets done, etc. And that was just a lot of energy, but it was basically misdirected energy. And they didn't have any answers, they just had a lot of ideas. Well, ideas are easy to come by, but you have to take your idea from the idea to its fruition. And they didn't know how to do that. So now I've realized in order to use them properly, I have to give them the exercise, let them figure it out, come back to me, and then I will edit it, and then we can possibly use it. I didn't use them as well as I think I could have, and I think uh, I'll be able to use them better now. And I think they will enjoy uh, their contributions. Excuse me, are you still talking about nine, about their involvement in nine? Sure. Liz and I have a slightly different thing to answer it, Gino. I mean, in Dracula... Uh, we were the late kids into that one. Though we were the man we do not into enter, enter into any arrangement we are, where we are not the managing producer, and except for in the case of either the Schuberts or Niederlander, we do not take a general partner except for ourselves. So that and we don't let anybody else I mean be general partners except for ourselves. The reason is fairly simple. Liz and I trust each other. We know we are going to go forward with a project and we're not going to do a checkbook tyranny number. We know we're both in together and we're both out together. And neither one of us will have to persuade the other, uh, as we did in Dracula. We went over the capitalization. Liz and I looked at each other and said, you're in? Of course we're in. Because <laughs> we were the ones that have to put up the money. Um, you know, personally, because you go out on the line with it. What I think has become sad in the theater is people that we used to call angels are now listed as producers. Some of them, you know, we have Ray Larson, who's been invested in every show we've produced, who gets billing. He's not a general partner. Ray lets us get on with our business because his business is something else entirely, and he trusts us, and that's about it. Um, others are not so lucky. They have, you know, constantly people bothering them and people who want to have input, creative right. input. 
when someone says to me, I am a creative producer, I go under the table, because I don't know what the hell that means. I mean, I think, I mean, fine, put up the money, come to opening night, enjoy being, having your name up there, but let the professionals get on with their job. Um, the climate is such that finding huge wadges of money, particularly for daring projects, even with the producers with, you know, top track records isn't always easy. So you land up having to do what everybody else does and grin and bear and give I mean, I was really furious at Carol Lawson's column when she really was very arrogant, I thought, and un not understanding about a play called All's Well That Ends Well that's coming in. Liz and I found eight people who wanted to put $156,250 each into a sure money loser. I mean, I don't see that one paying off. I really don't. And we told everybody that you're doing it to bring the RSC over in the most magnificent piece of staging, you know, since Nick Nick. It's beautiful. It's bittersweet. It's gorgeous. But don't think you're going to get your money back, guys. I mean, rather than asking about why all those people got mentioned and billing, she just did a kind of meh meh thing and, you know, it's funny, all these people. It's not that at all. It's a bunch of people decided to give back to the theater some of what the th they have taken from the theater. Which Cheryl Crawford said to me once, a great friend and a mentor of mine, she said, Nell, remember, you always at some point have to give back to the theater something of what you took from it. And I think we ought to all remember that. you got to give to get, yes, but there is also just giving open-handedly sometimes. As far as artistic control with the Royal Shakespeare Company, They've got it. I promise you, you don't. I mean, yes, you can talk about things to them, and after 15 years' relationship, Liz and I are very close to them, and Trevor and Terry and, you know, all of them listen to us. But ultimately, it's an RSC production. That's all there is to it. You have made it possible for them to get here. On that I note, think I think I would like to uh, thank our panel. Um, for giving us their time so generously today and to thank all of you for coming and uh, to thank the SSDC for making this possible. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.